0: Hi, this is Liz Tinkham and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's just not finished. Today I'm talking with Judy Spitz, the outsider. Judy started her career as an academic, but quickly leveraged her speech technology knowledge as the academic outsider at Verizon, where she rose to become the CIO. While there, Judy realized that the problem of lack of women in technology was not getting better. So she decided to solve the problem herself. Judy founded the program, Women in Technology and Entrepreneurship, which is a unique collaboration among corporations, Cornell Tech, and the City University of New York City. That program works with women students to prepare and enable them to pursue tech degrees in New York City. With a grant from Melinda Gates' Pivotal Ventures, the program is national and is now Breakthrough Tech. Judy is once again the outsider, but this time the corporate outsider, as she is now the executive director of that program.
1: Judy, thanks so much for coming to Third Act. It's a pleasure to be here. I always uh, look forward to the opportunity to both reflect back on my career and also talk to uh, other terrific women like yourself. Well, I think we
0: met somewhere along the way at Accenture, you were at Verizon and we were at a Women's Leadership Forum as a speaker, a guest, but we have a common friend in Lynn McMahon. So I appreciate her reconnecting the two of us. So I wanna get started with uh, what I said in the introduction which is really around the speech and hearing and getting into teaching. So take us back to speech and hearing and how did you get into that to start and a little bit of background uh, on your college career and just post that.
1: Sure. you know. I would I would describe uh, myself in those early college years as not a risk taker, which is, I think, important for a lot of women uh, to either come to terms with or think about themselves in terms of that. And so when I thought about what I might do as a career, I applied to the School of Education at Boston University to become a teacher because that's what my mother did. And that seemed like a safe path forward. What I found is that um, as I started to take classes, I was drifting more and more to taking classes that had some kind of a scientific nature to them, explained how things worked. And as it turned out, serendipitously, and I'll come back to that theme, uh, in that same school were courses in speech pathology and audiology, which involved scientific courses in anatomy and physiology. And I just kept choosing the things that moved me more in the direction of things that had a science feel to it and things that had a, an approach to trying to understand how things work, how systems work. Back in high school, I had a teacher who made some kind of an offhand remark in a math class, thinking that I had you know great potential in the area of mathematics. And I did nothing with that consciously. Mm-hmm. That input to me at that young age, I know stuck with me because uh, inexplicably, I took a calculus course in college <laughs> and it did somehow or another create a vision of myself that I hadn't had before of, hey, maybe I, maybe I can be good at math and science. So we'll come back to that. But um, I, I started to take these classes. I majored in speech and hearing. It was all about how the systems of human speech understanding work and started to use this term sort of systems Mm -hmm. thinking. Probably before it was popular, right? Uh, It was. It was popular back then. I will tell you that when I listen to today's jargon, I think it's synonymous with computational thinking, which we talk about the way we need to educate some of our young people to move them towards computer science. But I, I I did major in that. I proceeded to get my bachelor's, master's, and then PhD in it. And ended up working on soft money, NSF grant money, at the university, pursuing my interest in in research around speech and hearing. And it was at that point that I made another move that, again, I think was motivated in part by my not being a risk taker. Mm-hmm. I assure you, working on soft money from NSF grants is not the most stable form of income, But I just happened to make friends with the person who ran the computer center uh, where I got my graduate degree and he offered me a job in the computer center. Again, appealed to that sort of systems thinking part of me and was a regular steady job. Mm -hmm. So while I was sort of waiting for a faculty position to open up, I took that job and I would say that that was kind of my first step towards what ended up being a career in tech.
0: Yeah, I think you said to me, come down and run the, he said to you, come down and run the PC department, which just seems so funny at this point. And what was that like in the PC department for a woman speech and audio uh, doctorate at that time?
1: Well, as you can imagine, I was a fish out of water uh, with with one exception. And that is, uh, you know, I consider myself to be a passionate learner. And so for me, it was, hey, I don't know anything about PCs, although quite frankly, way back then, which I will admit was many, many years ago, PCs were new, right? Nobody knew a lot about personal computers. We were all used to working on mainframes. And uh, he said, don't worry about it. I'll teach you. I can see that you have good uh, sort of relationship and leadership skills and so on. And so I said, fine. And I rolled my sleeves up and I learned about it. And I worked at that job for about a year. And I will tell you that I both discovered something about myself then that has carried forward. And that is one of the things that I'm most passionate about is continuous learning. For me, once I learned what I needed to do to do that job, there wasn't any more sort of excitement about it. We weren't accomplishing sort of big things. And I found that I just wasn't motivated. You know, when I was doing research as part of my PhD, and after that, you're continually learning. You are, in fact, by definition, setting up uh, research projects in order to break new ground and learn mm-hmm. something nobody's known before. So this was, this was too much of a sort of a straightforward operational job. And uh, while I was uh, doing that job, it just so happened that somebody I went to my PhD program with had heard that the "quote unquote" phone company Nine mm-hmm. X back in those days, right? Yes, Northeast uh, was starting an applied research lab, and they were hiring a bunch of academics in order to do advanced applied research that would be helpful to the telecommunications industry, and there was going to be a speech technology group, and that I should go and apply for that job. And again, a bit of a fish out of water. I didn't know anything about corporate America. I didn't know anything about that kind of applied research. But there was this connection, obviously, to my background in terms of human spoken language systems. And they said that they were looking for academics. So I went for that interview, I landed that job. I thought it would be the two to three year plan before I went back to academia. And 30 years later, I retired from Verizon.
0: When did you figure out maybe this is gonna be a good career for me and I'm not necessarily gonna go back to teaching?
1: Yeah, I think I I think I think figured that out, as you say, within the first couple of years. And I think it's because I realized very, very early on that there were two things that I did consider my core strengths that had worked for me in my academic career, but were really, really highly valued, much to my surprise in a corporate environment. And uh, one was my ability to basically stand up in front of a group of people and tell a compelling story. An adjunct faculty member teaching college courses during my PhD, obviously that's something you have to do. Right. Similarly, yep. When you're, you know, giving papers at scientific conferences and so on. So it was a skill that I, you know, had and developed and it was remarkable to me, especially in a tech organization, how valuable that skill was among techies. Probably not a lot of them had it,
0: right? You were probably stood exactly. out. Right.
1: Exactly. So that was one. And I liked leveraging that, made me effective. And the second was I knew how to organize projects and people in order to get things done. I think I learned that to some extent getting my PhD dissertation done. And again, amongst a bunch of techies, being able to sort of structure things and organize projects in a methodical way, all of those things turned out to be real assets So how was the
0: environment at what then became Verizon because the was it Bell Atlantic bought 9X and then they changed their name if i remember correctly how was it for women during those years so that would have been sort of late 80s 90s the knots.
1: yep so what i would say is that it was incredibly supportive i have to say that because let's face it i had my children tw- i have twins wow <laughs> they have oh, twins um, god bless you I had them about two and a half years, three years into my career. And twins, at least in those days, was automatically considered a high-risk pregnancy, which means I had to start working from home six months into my pregnancy. Now, work from home, of course, literally in today's world, has, again, taken on new meaning. But it was pretty unusual then- Mm -hmm. Uh, We did not have internet access at home and the company was incredibly supportive. I, I worked from home. I had my work phone forwarded to my home. Remember, we didn't have cell phones. I had a computer that I was able to use. My boss at the time was so supportive that when it came to his having staff meetings, his staff meetings, of which I was only one member, he brought the whole staff to my house. So so it was really, uh, I couldn't have asked for more. However, I will also say I worked my butt off and, you know, I use the term workhorse, which I think a lot of women tend mm-hmm. to step in, right? We're used to it. I worked incredibly hard. I got my work done and more, you know, I put my kids to bed and went back to work, all that same stuff. And I also, uh, I, I had enough humility which is a very undervalued quality in leaders to surround myself with people who could do what I couldn't do, who knew what I didn't know, and so on. So uh, it's one of the reasons why I say a little bit tongue in cheek that I think imposter syndrome isn't all bad. What I mean by that is being comfortable with the idea that you don't know everything is an actual, an asset. Because it allows you to be comfortable to bring in people who are, you know, smarter and better than you and create create a great team. I think uh 9X, Bell Atlantic, Verizon could not have been more supportive. The one caveat I'll say again for people who might be listening is in my era, I would say I was guilty as charged in what I now know has a name, which is called the Cinderella syndrome, which I learned means a tendency for women to think that if they just keep their head down and work hard, they'll get recognized. And that is certainly the philosophy that I had, meaning I didn't spend a lot of time advocating for myself or pushing for that next job and so on. And I absolutely moved ahead. I have no regrets. You know, I reached a C-level job. You know, What more could I ask for? But it didn't happen overnight. Uh, it took a long time. And I sometimes like to advocate to women that they be a little bit less passive about pushing their the advancement of their own careers than I think uh, we were in, in my right. era.
0: I, I would agree, I was the same way. But uh, but similar, I got promoted on schedule or ahead of schedule and I just kept my head down. So it right. kept working, <laughs> which you and I discussed that we were both very heads down in the 90s and the nots. I was also doing communications work, um, but, and we weren't realizing that STEM degrees for women were declining. And then our heads kind of picked up. And sometimes I feel a little bit badly about that because I feel like, what was I doing to, why wasn't I paying more attention? Because we get to the C-suite and we realize there's not much of a slate. There's not much of a pipeline.
1: I mean, any thoughts on that? Well, your experience mirrors mine perfectly. In fact, what I have found now that I have made that shift is that people see what I'm doing now and assume that throughout my career, I was the one that was in the women's group and I was the one that was leading the charge. Right. uh, And so on. And uh, sadly, it wasn't true. And again, I didn't realize it until much later in my career, but looking back on it, It was just, it was was too hard to try to balance, you know, raising my kids, having a full-time job, you know, figuring out that balance, trying to get ahead. I just didn't pick my head up. I was totally focused on the job itself. And let's face it, I was being treated very well. I was too. If, If I had felt like somehow or another, I wasn't being treated fairly or worse yet was being harassed or was being passed over, I might have had my sort of arm twisted, if you will, to to notice, but I wasn't. I was Mm -hmm. being treated well and was advancing, and I just kept working hard. And yes, I agree with you. I feel a little bit like I was asleep at the wheel. Mm -hmm.
0: That's exactly what I would say. You eventually, what year were you promoted to CIO?
1: I was promoted to CIO around 2005.
0: Okay, so mid knots. And now you're in charge of promoting women. You've got the entire IT group at Verizon, which is huge. And you, have, you start looking at slates for succession planning and advancement, and you have a bit of an aha moment.
1: Yeah. So as you said, you, know, you get to that level, and you are both responsible for the slates of women coming up behind you. You're also responsible for talent development in the organization, you know, writ large. So two things happened uh, near each other. One is there were a group of upper middle management women who worked for me who wanted to start to get together and just talk about the issue of women's leadership in the organization. And so I met with them on several occasions. And the other thing that happened in parallel was my meeting with HR talent development uh, support folks and asked them to show me the statistics, not the people who were close to my level, but further down in the organization that were coming up. You know, where how many of those women were there and where were they? And in both of those cases, I was both appalled by the numbers. It was amazing to me that below my radar screen, lower down in the organization, the reason I didn't know them wasn't because they were too far from me organizationally, it was because there weren't very many of them. That was one. And the second was this sense of talking to these women about, you know, why isn't it getting better and who's doing what and why aren't people doing more and so on. And I I just had this kind of, no other way to say it, sort of aha moment where in in my brain, I had first the thought why isn't anybody doing anything more significant? Immediately following that was, why aren't I doing anything? <laughs> I mean, who am I looking around that? You know, I'm a chief information officer at a Fortune 10 company. Who, who else am I looking mm-hmm. at, you know, to be quote unquote, the leaders here? You know, one of the things you learn as you move higher up in leadership is them is us. Mm-hmm. There, there, there is no other, you can't look up too much higher to say why aren't the quote unquote senior leaders doing anything because you are them. Mm-hmm. And that really got me thinking that for heaven's sakes, I have 30 years of management experience, learning how to do big important things at scale. I had this idea, uh, again, because of all the research that I was doing, that I couldn't believe that at that point in time, so this was now 2014, that understanding something about how software gets written wasn't a basic requirement to graduate college. I mean, it, it, to me, it was like basic, basic literacy. You may never write a, lo- write a line of code in your life ever again but you are surrounded by software. You're surrounded by people who are developing systems and you should know something about how it works. So I Googled that question and up tops up uh, the name Maria Clave, Mm -hmm. president of Harvard College, who was and is the trailblazer Mm. in the effort to get more undergraduate women to study computer science. And the reason why I was focused on those undergraduate years was, again, because I found that there were lots and lots of efforts in the K-12 space. The most popular one, or well-known one, of course, is Girls Who Code. There are many others, um, which is fantastic. We absolutely should get as many middle schoolers and so on, elementary schoolers interested in in technology. But all the data showed that that alone was not enough. We had been at that effort for probably 10 years then. And if you then popped up to look at the undergraduate ranks, the numbers uh, weren't changing. And think about it. 58% of the undergraduate community are women, 58%. That is an opportunity space of these women who are clearly capable. They're at college. They're getting their bachelor's degrees. And only 1% of them are studying computer science. I believe firmly that we all go to college to figure out what it is we're interested in. Those of us who thought we knew what it was, like myself, end up 50% changing their mind anyway. And so the idea that if you didn't already know that you were interested in computer science or you hadn't already learned how to code, that somehow or another it was too late, I think is baloney. So that's how I got focused on that space. I saw Maria Clave's name. I sent her an email saying, have you written any papers or do you have anything that I can read? I'd love to know more about what you're doing. And she responded, I'm really not kidding, a half an hour later saying, I'd love to jump on a call with you.
0: She's great. I've met her several times before. She's great advocate. Exactly.
1: So we talked on the phone. A few months later, I was on a plane on my way to California to visit her. I socialized the idea with her. And really the, the program that I ended up developing is largely standing on her shoulders, if you will, in terms of replicating what she's done, but also modifying it for the fact that I'm working with a very different population of young women than the ones who go to- Yeah,
0: then go to Harvey um, Mudd.
1: Yeah. Complete happenstance, Bill Gates had donated money at Cornell University in Ithaca, and they were having a ribbon cutting of the brand new computer science department which became known as the Gates Building. And the head of the Verizon Foundation was supposed to go to that ribbon cutting and she couldn't go. And she knew that I always had sort of a toe or a foot in academia. And so she said, hey, Judy, would you like to go to this event? And I was like, sure, what the heck? And uh, I went up to Ithaca and attended that event. It was another colleague of mine there. and. He and I were chatting, and I told him my idea because mm-hmm. at that point I was telling anybody who would listen. And he said, That's a great idea. You know, Dan Huttenlocker, who is the dean, the new dean of Cornell Tech, which is in New York, is here. And he is very interested in diversity in tech. He might be interested in this idea. Let me introduce you to him. Cornell Tech is a graduate campus uh, situated on Roosevelt Island it is an applied sciences university campus as a branch of cornell university and it was part of the bloomberg administration right. during bloomberg's uh, mayoral years he did a large number of things in order to promote uh, and enable new york to be what it is now which is you know competitive with silicon valley as you know the tech mecca in the country and so here you're meeting Dan? I'm meeting Dan Hutlocker. Dan Hutlocker. Yep. And I'm telling him I have this idea to create a kind of a center or a program focused on getting more women in computer science in New York, specifically in New York, sort of this ecosystem model. And he's like, well, that's interesting. Here's my card. Call me when we get back to New York. I did... I then went and knocked on the CEO of Verizon's door, Lowell McAdam, who I am forever grateful to. Mm -hmm. And I said, hey Lowell, I have this idea of what I'd like to do when I leave Verizon. I'd like to partner with Cornell Tech. I happen to know that Lowell is uh, very committed to Cornell University and Cornell Tech. He's on the Board of Trustees and was uh, on the Board of Overseers of Cornell Tech. He said, I have this idea, and I talked to Dan and he's kind of interested. Would you support this and be our first corporate sponsor? And told him my whole proposal. And as he likes to tell the story, which is just, uh, I think, a wonderful story to tell, as they say, he said, you know, Judy, you had me at hello. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so with Lowell uh, putting, you know, writing a check, he also made a few phone calls um, we approached. Uh, I approached the chancellor of CUNY to say, I want to create this partnership be- between CUNY and Cornell Tech with the goal of significantly increasing the number of women in your computer science departments. He was like, all in. I approached a few more corporate sponsors, and I will say I approached Lynn McMahon, who you mentioned at the start, of this, my dear friend and colleague from Accenture, saying, hey, can you promote the idea within Accenture of Accenture becoming one of the funding partners? And in fact, they did. In fact, they, Verizon and Accenture are the uh, founding sponsors of, of the uh, initiative, which was called Whitney for Women in Technology and Entre- Entrepreneurship in New York. It was called that from the time that it launched, which officially was 2016 right up until uh, a few months ago in February of this year when we got a very large grant from Pivotal Ventures.
0: Oh, Melinda Gates. Melinda
1: Gates' private investment uh, and incubation arm, separate from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, focused uh, very much on advancing uh, women in tech. She saw what we were doing, saw the approach, which was to work within an ecosystem on both the supply side, meaning the academic partnership and the demand side, meaning work with industry throughout the city ecosystem to help them understand that they need to open up new doors of entry and recruit in different ways if they have a hope of bringing in a more diverse talent pipeline.
0: And and so how many students, the entry class was how many women? The first year you did it
1: well. First of all, understand that it doesn't really. We run about a dozen different programs, and students can participate in any or all. Of them. Okay, we we have programs for incoming freshmen and all the way through their college years. So nobody is necessarily in a class of our programs. Okay, but uh, say that the very very first year, we probably had about fifty to hundred women in various of our programs. But again, going back to my trying to leverage what you're good at, you know, when you get to that third act, uh, we were always uh, and remain all about scale. There's 135,000 women Women, at CUNY, something like that. Uh, If we run programs that reach, you know, 20 or 30 students in a class at a time, or 50 to 100 students a year, we're, we're going to be flying below the radar. We're, we're, we're just not making any difference. We have to run programs that every single year get hundreds, if not thousands of women through these programs, or we're just not going to move the needle. And so again, that was what I brought to the table was uh, I'm not afraid of scale, you know, Uh, We can pilot a program the first year, our Summer Guild program, the very first summer we ran it had 42 students. Now the program gets 400 students every summer through. Wow. And when we first said that we had a scale to that, I can assure you, most people from nonprofits and (laughs) academia, academia, you know, you know, um, because, you know, their eyes sort of pop out of their heads, like, no, no, no. And I was like, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. That's the way we're going to do it or we're not going to make a difference. I think that was part of what I brought to the table. Uh, did you ever think it wouldn't work? Do you have any fears about it? Yeah, absolutely. I had no idea if it was going to work. But number one, I was doing things, I, I, as I said, I was not reinventing the wheel. I was standing on the shoulders of giants. I was doing programs that had worked elsewhere. But what I was doing was focusing on the fact that the students who go to CUNY have different needs to go to CMU or Harvey Mudd. And so, for example, here's a good example. We ran a summer internship program where we were just trying to facilitate, sort of concierge service, facilitate these young women from CUNY getting summer internships. Uh, by finding companies that said they were w- willing to recruit from CUNY even though they normally don't. And so on. we did that program for uh, two summers and less than 5% of the CUNY women that we were you know, forwarding their resumes on were actually landing summer jobs. So I would consider that to be a pretty miserable failure. But mm-hmm. so we stopped and we scratched our heads and we said, what's going on here? Uh, And we said to the companies, you know, you said you want to hire these students. We're bringing their resumes to you. And you're either not even interviewing them or you're not offering them jobs. What's going on? And they said, look, Judy, uh, these kids have nothing on their resumes.
0: Of course they they don't. Of course
1: they don't. Of course they don't. Exactly. They're working two and three part-time jobs to support their families. Right. They have connections. They can't afford to go to hackathons on the weekends. Can't mm-hmm. afford to take unpaid apprenticeships and so on and so forth. And they don't go to a prestigious university. So, yeah. so they're not competitive. And so we sat back and I actually worked with some Verizon friends uh, to brainstorm. And we came up with this idea of a winternship. Uh, without going into too much detail, it is a paid three-week internship in the January intercession between first and second semester, paid by the companies. The whole idea is to give freshmen and sophomore women in computer science a little resume juice. Oh, it's a great idea. An experience that they can talk about and so on. And the net result of that, we did it with one company and five winterns. Winterns, All five great word. Landed summer jobs that summer. And we said, hey, we're onto something here, going back to my scale. Mm-hmm. We now host 60 companies, host 300 Winterns every January. And because again, there's no point in having a Winternship program for five or 10 for five, or 15. five, right. Of- Too much effort, not enough results. Right. So, you know, we follow the uh, lesson we've all learned, which is deliver something, observe it, iterate, figure out what you did wrong, fix the bugs, do another release.
0: You also said that, and I've been thinking about it since we talked before, that the internship program in the United States is somewhat broken and that kids from great universities, they're already great. So they got into a great university. So why do they need to get the plum internships? Why don't we take kids who don't have the opportunities, who might be at lesser universities, but achieving very well, and let them take those internships? And Talk about leveling the playing field. I, th- I think that's a brilliant idea.
1: Yeah. So, you know, we know that summer internships are the single biggest predictor of being able to land a job when you graduate. This has been shown already. And so that's why we are so focused on what. how do we give uh, the students who go to CUNY, and the women in particular, uh, more of a competitive edge. And that's what the internship is about. But. As we saw what happened, what's happening now with COVID and uh, summer internships being canceled, what a lot of people are observing is what we knew, which is these summer internships are even more critical to these students who go to public universities and from disadvantaged backgrounds, because it's the only way they get their foot in the door. And as you said, These companies, they are going to recruit from MIT and CMU and Georgia Tech and and Columbia and NYU. They're recruiting from there anyway. Mm -hmm. We understand pipeline initiative. But if they really, really want to diversify their tech ranks, then probably the most productive way to do it is to use that 10-week summer internship to bring in these students who they wouldn't normally get exposed to who aren't in their standard recruiting pipeline and give them a chance to show themselves. And then they've got a real robust pipeline of diverse, non-traditional tech talent that they've gotten to meet and that they know. And Uh, they've helped to mentor. So my idea that I'm starting to talk about is... Repurposing that, you know, this is systemic change for companies to repurpose what they think of as their summer internship program as an opportunity to bring in students who are diverse in any number of ways as compared to their standard tech organization and use it as a diversity pipeline initiative. And I, I think there's some real, uh, some real leverage, and some real opportunity. Well, I think
0: it's a great idea. And I think about companies that I know of uh, just through my work at the University of Washington, where, by the way, most of my students get pretty lucrative internships until this summer. And, uh, you know, maybe there's a set aside for X percentage of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds or, and the number's gotten bigger, but, you know, repurposing the entire internship program is, is I think, a, a brilliant idea because if if I'm you know I just think about all the advantages kids from my own neighborhood have, and they're they're gonna they're already doing great in college and they're they've already got the leg up going into yep. the job right, yep. if not exactly just through some of the things that they've done, their parents right they just connections so so yep. the thing I love the most about your story, Judy, is that you saw the problem, you realized no one was coming in to rescue, right there was no cavalry coming from h r or senior leadership, it was you to fix it and you went big to do it. And so as I think about the people listening to this and as they are pivoting to their third act, what advice would you give them when they're thinking about wanting to get started on their passion and their big idea?
1: Yeah, here's what I think. It's true that that describes my story, but I think there's a story beneath the story, if you will. And so there are three or four things I'd say to the people who might be listening. The first is the obvious one, which is do what you're passionate about. Hopefully, you're passionate about in your main career or your second act, using your terminology, but for sure in your third act, do something that you're passionate about. But here are three other things that I think are a little less obvious. One is uh, do something that leverages your inherent strengths, your unique experience from your you know, main career the skills that you've learned over the years. In other words, your long career um, as an asset, Mm -hmm. not as a liability. Oh, I'm, I'm older. I'm at the end of my, you know, year, productive years or whatever. And you heard me say, you know, it was, it was that management experience that I wanted to bring to bear and my ability to sort of tell my story uh, and get others to jump on board. So make sure you think about what are your inherent strengths and your unique experience that you can bring to whatever you're passionate about. The second, of course, is that serendipity matters. And so in order to let serendipity happen, you got to talk to a lot of people. <laughs> okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, because using all those contacts that you have talking to lots and lots of people, something serendipitous will happen. <laughs> Somebody, will say something or listen to what you're saying and suggest something. And if you're not out there talking to lots of people, you don't even have the opportunity to let serendipity come to you. The last thing I'd say is sort of think about your legacy a little bit. You know, what are you remembered for? You know, when I was pursuing and towards the end of my 30-year career, there was no question in my mind at that time that my being a CIO at Verizon was going to be what I was remembered for. I mean, it's what I did for all those decades and reached that C-level you know, executive suite and so on. But the truth of the matter is, is that actually now I think what I'll be remembered for is having started Whitney and Breakthrough Tech. And so uh, if you kind of ask yourself, what do you want to be remembered for? That might point you in a direction in terms of uh, what you should do next.
0: So I thought about naming this podcast I'm not done yet because that's how I feel. And I also want to be remembered for something other than my 30-year career at Accenture. So what aren't you done with yet? It's a great question.
1: I, I think the one thing that I am not done with yet is being more of a national spokesperson for this. Sounds like you're well on your way though with the pivotal investment. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I do public speaking engagements. I uh, am not quite on sort of national committees or you know uh, government, you know task forces and things, or uh, speaking at things that will influence public policy and more systemic change. And again, the reason why I want to do that is twofold. One is because speaking out loud and telling the story of what I'm passionate about, has been from the beginning, something that I think I bring to the table. But the other is because I do have this unique vantage point of having spent a very long time in industry Mm -hmm. and at a sweet level, so I can speak from that experience. But I also have an academic background that dates back to my PhD and now is got the program that I'm working. So I do bring a different perspective that I think would allow me to promote systemic change in a broader way. And so uh, that's what I hope I'll do next. Mm. Well, thank you so much it's,
0: uh, for joining us on Third Act. And when you become the secretary of education, we'll have you back. How's that? If you speak <laughs> to us. So Judy, where, before we close, where can people find you online?
1: Okay, uh, let's see. Email judith.spitz at cornell.edu. Twitter account, Dr. J Spitz, D R J Spitz, one word. And LinkedIn, I'm just under Judith Spitz. And the organization is breakthroughtech.org, one word, breakthroughtech.org. Email address there, such that if you wanted to just email the organization and find out more about what we do, that email comes to me. Great. Okay. Well, thanks again. And I uh, look forward to talking to you again. Bye-bye. My pleasure. Thanks
0: so much, Liz. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.